A rumor spread falsely among villagers that didn't know us that we foreigners opened the door so light would shine on the road to Kashmir so the Indian bombers could bomb it. It was a false, false rumor, and people got all excited. They came with all kinds of weapons. That was before the Afghan war, so they didn't have guns. They had swords and axes and what have you, and torches. They were going to set our houses on fire and burn us. Once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered attack. innocent Islamic people extremists the now Islamic control terrorists. much of the country. The Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. Newsflash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. We are uh, in the studio today with uh, Don McCurry. Don McCurry was the founder, uh, founding director of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies. Originally, it was called the Zwemer Institute in 1979. So, Don, start us off with a little bit about that, because the Zwemer Center has uh, is the sponsor of the Truth About Muslims podcast, and a lot of people don't really know what the Zwemer Center is all about. Way back in the mid-70s, when uh, we came back from Pakistan, we were aware of almost a total blank uh, in the American churches about uh, Islam and Muslims. And uh, that was a burden on my heart. And uh, when I was put on the student council at Fuller Seminary, and we had a big banquet for all of us and faculty, Everybody was supposed to bring a, a three-minute presentation for their dream of world evangelization. They gave you three minutes. Three minutes, yes. So I had seven points on a three-by-five card. And one of those points was the Lausanne Committee on World Evangelization needs to do a major consultation on Muslim evangelism because there hasn't been one done since 1906. Wow. 70 years. This was 1976 when this happened. So why do you think that is? Why did we go 70 years without talking about Islam at all? Uh, we put them on the shelf as long as we are isolated, two oceans protecting us from all kinds of things, we're going to go cushy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of <laughs> happiness. That's us. Cushy. All right. I like that. We, we, we call that nerf life. Well, how about couch potatoes? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true, too. <laughs> all right. So you've got uh, three minutes. You say we need to focus on Muslim evangelism. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember all the other points, but the one that grabbed Pete Wagner, who was the chairman of the strategy working group of Lausanne, grabbed it, and he said, hey, listen, everybody, Lausanne's going to have a consultation on Muslim evangelism, and Don McCurry's going to go direct it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) No, it it wasn't that. He said... He he had a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) no, No, it wasn't that either. He said... I want you to write up a proposal. And this boondock missionary from 18 years in Pakistan said, "Uh, what's a proposal? (laughs) Uh, Robert Douglas, who was my classmate, was standing at my elbow. And Bob said, I know how to do that. So uh, we went to the refectory, uh, and for two hours I emptied my brain on creative ideas of what should go into a consultation. And his wife, June, took notes, and they formulated a 36-page proposal. Wow. We handed it to uh, Pete Wagner, and he said, great, you're coming with me to Chicago, and you're boiling this down to a 15-minute presentation to the North American Lausanne Committee. So uh, we did it, and it was accepted, and impetuous Pete Wagner in his characteristic style said, okay, we're going to do it, Lausanne's going to do it, and World Vision is going to fund it. And uh, Stan Mooneyham was sleeping after lunch, and he hears World Vision, and he wakes up, and he's all arms and legs, and he says, wait a minute, you can't do that. (laughs) I've got a board I have to answer to. First objector. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So a lot of people are probably wondering, what is Lausanne? Not everybody's going to know that terminology. What is Lausanne? In 1974, Billy Graham, as the honorary chairman, pulled together a consultation in Lausanne, Switzerland, on world evangelism, and it pulled people together from all over the world. Um, It followed Berlin in 1966, 
And there was a little one in Singapore in 1968, All-Asian Christian Leadership Conference. But this is the biggie. Uh, This is when uh, almost anybody who was anybody was brought to Lausanne, Switzerland. I I know we brought a a large delegation from Pakistan uh, for that. And that was when Ralph Winter, for example, popularized the concept of unreached people groups. And uh, there were tremendous papers, and uh, they're all collected in a book edited by by Douglas. Uh, But that was the beginning of something really, really big. And uh, that set the tone then for other area consultations, including the, the possibility of one on the Muslim world. And okay, so and how did we get the name Zwemer out of this this whole beginning? Oh, you're touching a sore point in my heart. Okay. <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I'm just going to preface it with: it would have been easier to take a, a name that's not easily misspelled and, <laughs> yeah, and, but... and mispronounced. People are always asking: Is it Zwemer? Zwimmer? How do you say it? And so here we go. We need to hear it from you. Okay, uh, we had a constituting committee of thirteen people. Uh, being chaired by Dr. Arthur Glasser, the dean of the School of World Mission. And my proposal for the name of the institute was the Southern California Institute of Islamic Studies. It was, it was Dr. Arthur Glasser who proposed the name of Samuel Zwemer, that we name it after America's earliest and foremost missionary to the Muslim world. And I didn't like it at all. <laughs> so th- they finally took a vote, and the vote was 12 to 1. Only one dissenter. I'm that was me. That's you. <laughs> that was me. What do they have against Southern California? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but you know the consequences of that poor decision. <laughs> you know, Southern California could have fit too, because now we're in South Carolina, SC. We could have kept the same domain name. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Well, what happened was this: that no one thought of consulting anybody in the Zwamer family. Oh, uh, this yikes. got around, and I, the, the negative voter, had to travel the length and breadth of the United States finding Zwemer relatives and apologizing. Man, that's a that's an interesting job. You have to go and do that. How how what was that like? Uh, let's not talk about it. You have to destroy <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> Oh no! This is going live. This needs to happen. So it was a, it was a rough start with the name. Okay, uh, what what really happened uh, before all of that was the Lausanne consultation that was held in Glen Erie, Colorado, and that was fantastic. We divided everybody into six teams of twenty five people each. On each team were anthropologists, Islamists, theologians, communication experts, mission executives, missionaries third world reps, and women. Did they get along? Uh, not very well. So, uh, <laughs> Behind Ed, the scenes. <laughs> Ed, Ed Dayton, who was my management guru, because this was all officed at World Vision, Ed Dayton said, uh, by the middle of the second day, the third worlders are going to complain that this is an American management technique stuff, and we better have plan B. And plan B was we broke everybody up into task force according to their own profession. Oh. And we were ready. And so we, we went with the flow on that, and then it was the task force forces that, that came out with the mandate, we need a research training institute in Southern California that will cooperate with the Mission Advanced Resource Center of World Vision, with uh, the U.S. Center for World Mission, and with the School of World Mission at Fuller Seminary. We need to pull all this together in a major training institute and research institute for the Muslim world. Wow. Now, this wasn't the first time this has happened in Christian history. This sounds like exactly what Raymond Lowell was calling for with the Catholic Church, uh, you know, in the early, what is that, the 12th century? The end of the 13th 13th century. 13th century. And so this is sort of a a renewal of what God has been wanting the church to do from the very get-go with Islam. It's to understand Islam so that we might engage them with the gospel. That's a nice connection. He's my hero. (laughs) <laughs> and that's why you knew the date. <laughs> I was going to say, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, 1335, what, 1235 to 1305. He, he died just before he turned 85. Wow. And so the, 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 the call was there. 
we need a research center. We need an institute. And originally it was called the Zwemer Institute. And what was the vision? What was the goal? The vision was uh, to uh, mobilize research on all kinds of Muslim people groups because that was the end thing, people groups. And uh, at the same time to cooperate with the U.S. Center and Fuller Seminary and the Zwemer Institute itself and and, uh, putting forth training programs. So we started... um, Arthur Glasser said, if you come to Fuller and start doing this, we will inaugurate training for Muslim people and we will never look back. And that's how it started. So we started with introduction to Islam and then Muslim evangelism, etc. Well, you did something really neat, too. You you created what was called and branded the Muslim Awareness Seminar. And this is in the late 70s, early 80s, when there really isn't much awareness going on in the United States of anything about Muslims or Islam. Exactly. I, I, needed, I knew that we needed to get goal ownership across the country, uh, that this was going to be the premier training center. Uh, and uh, I knew that the churches were apathetic, ignorant, and uninformed. And so we developed the, the first Muslim, the prototype of the first Muslim awareness seminar, uh, and uh, we uh, succeeded in getting into a hundred churches in seven years across the United States. Later, that was followed up by a, a more advanced seminar called "Reaching Our Muslim Neighbors." I have a quick question: Where were, where were the churches focused primarily on missiologically? Where were they? If there wasn't the Muslim world at that time, was it anywhere? Was it in missions? Was it not in the late seventies and early eighties? I would say it was uh, sprayed all over the map. Uh, you know, whoever felt a burden to do this or to do that. And uh, it was not that there were, not, were no missionaries in the Muslim world, but because they were not bearing fruit, they were not attractive. And so the tension kind of went, where, where does my buck do the most money? I mean, do the most fruit. Right, return on investment. Yeah, so that's right. So since nothing much was happening in the Muslim world, that was the dark area of neglect at that time. And I just had a passion that this has to change. And you were teaching this time at Fuller, and so you had a a combination of academic uh, streams coming from Zwamer. You had churches um, that you were equipping through the Muslim Awareness Seminar. And how about missionaries? Were there missionaries coming and training and doing research as well? When they heard about this, they flocked there. My early classes had 100 students each in them. Wow. Uh, Wow. We trained something like 800 missionaries in seven years. That's a... that's amazing to think about that many people having that much in, much interest that early on. And a lot of that research is now in the Zwamer archives, which I frequent and get to go through and see some of these dissertations that are being written. I mean, some of the master's degree level students were producing work, and they're, they're actually, you're the professor on almost all of these, and I'll take you over there and we can kind of look through them. How it's dreadful. A, it's, it, <laughs> I actually felt that way when I was looking at them, thinking, wow, this is a master's degree paper, and this thing is intense. You know, this is PhD level work. And so the quality of the scholarship was impressive. Well, uh, we put people's feet to the fire. <laughs> If, you, if you're going to take God seriously, you're going to take the challenge seriously, uh, we're, go, we're, going to, we're going to encourage you to work. So uh, uh, from these 800 missionaries that you guys have trained, what, what happened next? What was the next uh, step in this movement? Uh, the next step in that was that they went to the fields, and um, we had some conflicts then. I had a conflict with Dr. Um, Greg Livingstone. Greg Livingstone was the co-founder of Frontiers. We were very good friends. He... He recruited two of my children to two different missions when, because he belonged to two different missions. And the conflict begins. <laughs> and uh, this was the conflict. Greg, are you going to send your teams to me for training? He said, no. He said, uh, that's the option uh, 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 of the team leader. If the team, team leader wants training, fine. And if the team leader doesn't, uh, we're not going to require it. They had a 50% casualty rate for those early years because of that very decision. Was the thought that they would just have sort of an on-the-job training, get out there and figure it out as they go, and that yes. the pre-field training wasn't of great value? Yes. That was, that, uh, that was not Greg's opinion, but he opted to let every team leader decide. Wow. Half of them decided, we don't want any training. We want to get there. 
And uh, they had that 50% casualty rate in those early years of Frontiers. Yeah, I'm thinking about even in YWAM, that was our mentality as well. Just get out there, get the job done. And then I get out there and I start talking with people about Jesus and they're going, oh, we believe in Jesus. And I'm going, what? Muslims believe? What? I had no idea. I just, we didn't have that training. We didn't have that emphasis. And so how valuable now today for missionaries, do you feel like now that's an important aspect still that they should get some pre-field training, understand the religion amongst the people who they're going to work with? Uh, that that is e- even more so than before, because now we are we are aware of the wide spectrum of the different kinds of Muslims there are: Shias, Sunnis, Sufis, uh, Ahmadiyyas, um, uh, Taliban, uh, secularists, Marxists, uh, Black Muslims, and uh, Suf- uh, every kind you could imagine. And now we have learned to say, "Where are you going? What kind of people are you working with?" Are you going to do a little bit pre-field research on this before you go? Uh, are you going to build on what other people already have learned the hard way? Uh, and um, what about language learning? Uh, which language are you going to learn? You're going to learn the hard language. You're going to learn the big official one. Or what are you going to do? All, all of these things helped us refine how we train people today. Uh, today, we find a lot of churches are uh, have negative views of Muslims. At the time when mm-hmm. you were first uh, helping churches to see. Uh, Muslims for the first time, did they have this negative view or has that just been developed because of terrorism? Most of them had a negative view. Uh, uh, That's grown even worse uh, ever since then. And I would tell stories of how Muslims saved my life in life-threatening situations. I'm going to need to hear one of those stories, Dr. McCurry. Okay, that's no problem. (laughs) (laughs) You said uh, you've got stories of Muslims that have saved your life. Yeah. Okay, uh, here we go. Um, in the summertime, we, we would go up to the mountains uh, because I was involved in student work, university work up in the mountains and camps that the Christians owned. Okay, uh, we would shop in a little, a little bazaar called Chickagully, and my wife and children would be in a, a rental house up there on the hill. I'd come down and I'd sit in the veggie shop with a man named Misri Khan, a Muslim man. Wonderful, elegant, tall, white-beard man. And I, I would say, what do you call that in Pahardi? What do you call that? What do you call that? And we'd talk, and, and he'd ask questions, and I said, you know I wasn't born a Christian? He said, what? So immediately I had a chance to share my faith with him, and I would ask him what he believes, and I'd listen to stories of his family. We would uh, send doctors off to the villages to minister to the sick, people, especially TB was endemic there uh, because of their lifestyle. And we built a relationship, a good one. And uh, for example, I had trouble getting a visa coming back after my first term. It was a long spell. And uh, when he saw me coming after a year and three quarters, he dashed 50 yards up the road, embraced me, danced me in circles all the way down to the road to the nearest tea shop. And he said, how are your sons. He didn't ask about my wife or my daughters, okay? That's the most <laughs> thing. Okay. And I ask about his sons, okay? This was uh, a, an intimate relationship. And believe it or not, sometimes missionaries run out of money. And I said, Mr. Khan, I, I don't have any money to buy vegetables this week. He said, That's all right. We know you. Um, whenever it comes in, you just give it to us. That's the kind of relationship we had. Okay, we went to war with India. Pakistan went to war with India. And the road to Kashmir went within 50 yards of our house. And a total blackout. And Muslims are passionate when they go to war. They are all for it. And uh, a rumor spread falsely among villagers that didn't know us that we foreigners opened the door so light would shine on the road to Kashmir so the Indian bombers could bomb it. It was a false, false rumor, and people got all excited. They came with all kinds of weapons. That was before the Afghan war, so they didn't have guns. They had swords and axes and what have you, and torches. They were going to set our houses on fire and burn us. All right, this week's sponsors. CIU. CIU. CIU educates people from a biblical biblical world review. World view. World world review. 
CIU educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Mystery Klein was there, and he stood in the gateway before that path went up our hill, and he said to these people, don't do this. We know these people. They didn't do what you said. They said, get out of the way, old man. He jumped back in front of them, and he said, finally, you'll have to kill me first before you kill them. And after he said that two or three times, because he was respected, really, as an elder in that uh, little area, the crowd melted and gradually quieted down and went home. He stood between us and certain death. He saved my life. How did Christians respond to hearing a story like that? Uh, You'll have to ask them. I think sometimes we feel like uh, we we kind of have an idea of what Muslims are like because we see it in in the media. And uh, it sounds to me in your, you know, almost 60 years, I guess, working among Muslims, you've encountered the full gambit. Uh, We have. And um, there have been other incidences that are in the book that I finally put together called Tales That Teach. Each story has only one lesson in it, an important lesson. And uh, there are two stories of of times when Muslims have saved my life. Could you share with us another story and maybe the point from a tale from tales that teach? And then we'll put a link there and the on the website for listeners that would be interested in hearing a lot more of these tales. Uh, well, there are lots of them. Uh, let me put this one: when I got in a snit uh, about the church uh, in Pakistan, and I said they don't love Muslims. They've Understandably, they've been persecuted, their girls have been raped, uh, they hate Muslims, etc., etc. Oh, well, the church is here is hopeless. So I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'm going to spend all my free time with Muslims. I went through that for six months like that, and I fell into deep depression. And finally, I went to uh, the leading man of, at that time, of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, IFES. And I said, Cooker, you probably wondered where I've been for the last six months. I said, I, I got so fed up with the church that doesn't love Muslims that I spent all my free time with Muslims, and I did not seek any Christian fellowship with any Christians. That godly man leapt out of his chair and pointed across that table to me, and he said, Brother, you sinned. And I received that rebuke, and I learned the biggest lesson of my life. Missions and churches go together, and you cannot separate them. They are two sides of the same activity. And that was a big lesson for me to learn in Pakistan. Yeah. It does seem like there can be a lot of lone rangers out there. And it seems like God has made it in such a way that we do go out as the body of Christ and that he uses that. And forsaking the fellowship of the body of Christ, it it really had some huge consequences for you. It did. First of all, you cannot abandon Christian fellowship because we need one another. And secondly, God has mandated that his glory be manifested to the powers in the spiritual realms through the churches. Okay, now you're talking spiritual talk. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're good Westerners and, and rationalists here. So, uh, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God will forgive us. Um, help us understand a little bit about uh, having lived a majority of your life amongst people that are not coming from that worldview, that secular humanist worldview, that um, Western worldview. What have they taught you um, about these ideas, about the spiritual realms and how you view the world? I've had to rediscover the Bible because of them and through them. Uh, for example, <clears throat> Lauren Sandy, at that time the vice president of the navigators, trained me to train counselors for Billy Graham-type crusades, and I trained the counselors for T.W. Wilson and his crusades, so I knew how to do that. So I'm in Pakistan, and Dr. Akbar Haq, the leading evangelist from India, comes to Pakistan when it's okay, and his uh, administrator knew me and said, Don, will you train our counselors for the big crusades in Rawalpindi, Lahore, and Faslabad? So they requested my mission to do that, and the mission said, okay. I trained the counselors, and in Faisalabad, in the middle of Dr. Huck's first message, a young man comes screaming down the aisle at the top of his lungs and falls unconscious at the foot of the platform. 
I'm reviewing my Billy Graham training manual. <laughs> is this the first Let's time? See. Let's is this see. the first time confession of faith? Does he need some hand holding for assurance of salvation? Is this a backslider or is this other? Uh, uh, other. other, yeah. Yes, this is other. Turn to page 32 for other. So, as uh, a man who's had two years of medical school studying in psychiatry and all of that kind of stuff before I came to Christ, I said, This is a medical problem. Well, that's the secular response. Everything's a medical problem. Right. I called a doctor. The doctor came, his pulse, breathing, blood pressure, heart, everything's normal. He said, I don't know why he's unconscious. Dr. Huck, who was born in Sialco, just 90 miles away, but also had a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Minnesota. You know, he has a foot in both worlds. You can't fool him. When he gets through the meeting and we've carried the young man unconscious into the, the house nearby, Dr. Huck says, Don, come on over here. This man has a demon. We're going to cast the demons out of this man. He said it like that? Yeah. Okay. And that's pretty casual. Like, what was your thoughts at that point? It wasn't thoughts. My eyes got very big. <laughs> it wasn't thoughts. <laughs> brain it went was blank. responses. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I stood behind, beside him pretending I knew what was going on, okay? Right. I had no training in my church, my seminary, or my mission uh, of what to do about this. Okay. Dr. Huck jostled the young man's shoulder and in a strong voice said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of him. Strange voices came out of this young man and Dr. Huck demanded each demon to identify itself and then he commanded it to leave one by one in the name of Jesus and never come back. After four or five of these, this young man came into his right mind. I took his case study. Brother, how did you get this way? Alcohol, immorality, drugs, the occult. He opened every door to the other spirit world. And um, he was repenting that night. He really wanted out. And he, he came gloriously to Christ that night. I followed him up. I interviewed his friends to make sure all this is, is really true, this not hokey. And uh, he became an outstanding Christian newspaper reporter. As this uh, unfolded, I asked myself, why did I have to come to Pakistan to learn the Bible as normal? Why did I not learn this in, in, in my own country? And I had to finger the culprit. The culprit is the secular humanistic philosophy that was sweeping America. I remember back when I was getting a master's degree in English education, and I went to my professor at Temple University, and I said in his class, may I write my paper on a Christian philosophy of education? He said, no, you may not. And he quoted John Dewey's book on democracy and education, published way back in 1905, that has molded every teacher training program in America since then. And he said, we are not, we Christians, are not allowed to introduce a unique authority that discredits all other authorities into the public educational system. That's secular humanism. Removing the authoritative voice of the Word of God, the revelation of God, and putting everything on an equal plane. This is your voice. This is your voice. We love one another. We tolerate one another. Uh, this is secularism. You may do your thing. You may do mine. But you may not say you're the only way. So uh, I got, I got uh, my eyes awakened when in mid-career I got my master's in English education at Temple University in that kind of milieu. So going back to that story where... <clears throat> um, you helped cast out uh, multiples of demons. How how did that affect the way you trained missionaries after that? Uh, because God opened my eyes, I opened their eyes. I teach folk Islam and power encounter, and I teach uh, at the uh, at the end of those several days of teaching, uh, exorcism and healing. Uh, they are part of the manifestation of the presence of the kingdom. And if you did not have that manifestation, basically what you're doing is you're pushing people back on on uh, medicine and other ologies, uh, psychology, whatever, pharmacology, you name it. And they think, oh, you don't have any power. Therefore, I'm going to go to the witch doctor. He has power. Uh, these people look for manifestations of spiritual power. And if they do not find it in the missionary in the area of, of, of deliverance and healing, and sometimes signs and wonders. If they do not find it there, they go to the people of power in their culture 
because they can feel it and it uh, kind of reassures them even if they don't know it's evil power. Right. So what would you say to the cessationalists that are coming, like uh, uh, MacArthur, who just finished that book, Strange Fire? Uh, do you find many missionaries that, uh, that you know, go to the mission field or are planning to go to the mission field but have a kind of a cessationist viewpoint? Yes. John MacArthur is a brilliant Bible expositor, except when it comes to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I think that's the only commentary of his I own, actually, because I was curious how he came to the conclusions he did. But yeah. go, sorry, go ahead. Okay. John uh, reads those words in 1 Corinthians 13, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Tongues shall cease, prophecy shall cease. He predicates that on, uh, on the post-apostolic period and from that time forward. Uh, we do not think that the Bible uh, is to be treated that way. And when you get uh, out of your tree uh, and you start mixing up with other um, people who have deep experiences uh, in the Spirit of God and you see the manifestations properly exercised of all the gifts lifted, listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and you study their lives, and these people love Jesus, and they spend their lives out in servanthood to other people. And yeah, they have uh, the exercise of these gifts, some of which are incredibly important, like the discerning of spirits. Uh, then you realize that what you were taught as, uh, as a secessionist in your denomination is not true. Uh, you test these people, you know, Anglicans, Team missionaries of all things, that's not supposed to happen in team mission. Uh, Presbyterians, Charismatics, Assembly of God, all of them, they're outstanding examples of godliness and fruitfulness, and they have these gifts in operation. That's an eye-opener. So you're looking at this as much more of a battle of not of flesh and blood, but that of spiritual powers. That's the way you were viewing the ways that God was using you and others there in, in Pakistan and also in other parts of the Muslim world. There's a spiritual battle going on. A spiritual battle is not just the exercise of those gifts over there. The spiritual battle is right here. Uh, if you take Ephesians 6.12 seriously, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, etc. There are spirit powers empowering secular humanists who attack the gospel and are trying to remove God from the public arena. That is not an innocuous, secular kind of thing. That's empowered even though they call it secularism. There is an enemy here as well as there. So... Answer the question that you asked earlier. Why did you have to go to Pakistan to find the Bible? Is it just that secular humanism, or is it a belief that we don't believe in the spiritual powers anymore, or is God working stronger in these contexts where there is no church? We've heard so many different viewpoints about why miracles, dreams, visions, spiritual manifestations happen in other parts of the world and not here. What are your thoughts? I think it starts with German rationalism uh, that began to affect the, the philosophers and then the ideology that shaped our country. Uh, and when you look at the religious phenomena of the founding fathers, a lot of them were deists. Uh, so God is up there. He set everything in motion, and, and now it's just kind of going on its own. Uh, there's no room for the manifestation of spiritual power in that kind of a worldview. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, took the philosophy of John Locke, life, liberty, and the right to own property. He modified it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so that was the, the, the embryonic form of the American dream, uh, which where I use the expression, the cushy life. Uh, you uh, are all about eliminating pain from your life, uh, and you uh, think you can do it materialistically, and you forget uh, that Jesus Christ is a healer. And so you have to go overseas where people are unleashed to actually believe the Bible the way it is. And you see it in operation, and you wake up. Oh, the Bible really is normal. Do you have any other stories that you could share that would open our listeners' eyes? Or ears, actually. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, they could open their eyes as they listen. <laughs> Okay, um, maybe raise them from the dead if they're dead, okay. <laughs> some maybe, some maybe. <laughs> okay, uh, forgive me, audience. I, I don't want to trivialize you. I love you. Okay, here. <laughs> okay, look. Uh, 
A young man's pounding on my front door. Brother Don, Brother Don, you have to come, uh, you have to, come to the hospital. Your friend Naaman is dying. So I rush over to United Christian Hospital in Lahore, Pakistan. And it's winter time. There's no central heating. It's cold. They lay all the patients out on mattresses in the sunshine. I'm walking through them, and I find my friend Naaman. I can hardly recognize him. Ted is the size of a giant pumpkin. Uh, his hands are swollen. His feet are swollen. His arms and legs are like sticks, and I gasp. And I say, Naaman, what happened to you? He said, Brother Don, I have advanced TB of my lungs, and my kidneys have shut down. And the doctors have said the medicine for the lungs makes the kidneys shut down harder, and the, le- the medicine for the, uh, the kidneys makes the TB grow faster. At that point in medicine, we cannot save you. You're going to die. He looks up at me and he says, Brother Don, would you pray for me? I felt totally inadequate. So the show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And this week's sponsors are... Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. The Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. And what does the Zwammer Center do? Talks about Muslims and, and tells them on the computer that we love you. Very nice. The Zwemmer Center equips the church to reach Muslims. The Zwemmer Center has been educating people about reaching Muslims before it was cool. I went over to meet my colleague, my missionary doctor, Dave, Dave Williams, Dr. Dave Williams. Dave, what's the prognosis on this guy? He's going to die. We can't save him, and he, he reiterated what Namath said. I go back to uh, sit on the ground beside Namath, feeling totally impotent. And I remember back at our college, uh, Mrs. Sinclair, the wife of the uh, Anglo-Indian president, had a, a gift, a, a, press, a, a reputation for the gift of healing. So I said, um, Namath, I'm going back to the college, and I'm going to bring Mrs. Sinclair and I grabbed some Bibles, and as I did so, I remembered Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So we sat beside Namath, and I began to read every story of healing in the four Gospels. Why? That's the word of Christ. I didn't have any faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And as we read these stories of healing and really got into it, Faith began to grow inside of me. And then it came time to pray, and we said, Name it, you're going to pray first. Now, this guy's a nominal Christian. And as he starts his uh, prayer, it's like stones falling out of his mouth straight to the ground. And I'm groaning and saying, Oh, oh God, nothing's going to happen here. And then suddenly he begins in a loud voice to confess all of his sins. The impression, I think in pictures, the impression I got it was he's like on the edge of a cliff ready to fall into the fires of hell. And he thought this is his last chance to get right with God. He poured out everything he could think of in his life. It was awful. We're sitting there in a public area. I separate my fingers and look. Crowds are gathering, listening to this sensational, loud confession of sin. I close my eyes again and... Uh, as he's continuing to pray, faith is growing even stronger inside of me. Yeah, God can heal this guy. When, we, when he is through praying, we make sure he understands that Jesus died for every single one of those sins and took them into his own body for him, died on the cross and washed him clean by his blood. And if he confesses and repents and accepts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, he will be clean. And he was ready. That's what he did. And when he was through praying all of that to the Lord, we said, okay, Naboth, now we're going to pray. And I forgot all about James 5, where it says, call for the elders and anoint with oil. I forgot it. So we did the obvious. We put our hands over his chest. Oh, God, rebuke the tuberculosis bacilli. We put our hands over his kidneys. Oh, God, open up his kidneys. We put our hands over the edema. Oh, God, make the edema go away. We put our hands on his stick-like arms and legs and said, oh, God, make the muscles grow back. And when we were through paying, God gave us the faith to say to Naaman, Name it, now you're going to get well. 
Three days later, Dr. Dave Williams called me back to the United Christian Hospital. Don, what did you do to that guy? He's getting well. Now, what would you say to your missionary secularized doctor colleague? Dave, in case you never thought about it before, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's healing that man. Name it got well. It took a while. He got well. He's a transformed person. He's promoted in his job and promoted to postmaster general in another city. Led an outstanding Christian life for about the next 15 years. Same question I had after Dr. Huck's deliverance ministry in Faisalabad. Why did I have to come to Pakistan to learn that Jesus heals like that today? Secular humanism. Is God using this in drawing Muslims to himself as well? Have you seen God do miraculous things among Muslim communities to reveal Christ? I've seen some of it. I haven't seen everything that, for example, that David Garrison is talking about, but I read about it in his book and Jerry Truesdale's book, Miracle Movements, etc., etc. I believe these reliable witnesses, and I believe these things really are happening. I have seen a minimum of that. My, my ministry is largely teaching and training. Now, I'm not out there as a practitioner doing this all the time everywhere. Uh, but my colleagues uh, have seen more of it, even more of it than I have. I believe that the Bible is normative. I know, Dr. McCurry, that you've worked a lot with the Hispanic Church in mobilizing them for Muslim ministry. Do you see that they have a much more open mind to working in the spiritual realms than some other Westerners? Incredibly, uh, you hit the, the nail on the head, Trevor. I love when I do that. Uh, yes. Because, because you're a professor and you're supposed to be sharp. It's okay. supposed to be. I'll, yeah, okay. I'll leave, let listeners be the judge of that. <laughs> Okay, I don't want to flatter anybody because that's a sin. Okay. <laughs> Before he tells the story, I did have him as a professor way back when, and he he's still got the same gusto that he had then, and it's exciting to hear you share. So tell us, what is God doing amongst the Hispanic communities with Muslims? Okay, uh, I bu- practically burned myself out at the Zwemer Institute, and my wife saw an ad in the newspaper Uh Five days, Guadalajara, Mexico, all expenses paid, $239. How can you resist a vacation like that? You're not about to share that you did work on your vacation, are you? No. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, but I, I did not go to sleep on my vacation <laughs> either. Okay, we're, we're riding in a bus from the airport uh, to the city of Guadalajara. I thought I was back in Pakistan. I saw all these adobe houses. This is like Pakistan. Wow, these people, maybe, maybe they could work in Pakistan. So the next morning we wake up, we're walking the city, and I'm reading all the street signs in Guadalajara. That's Arabic in Spanish alphabet. That's Arabic. That's Arabic. I didn't realize so many loan words from Arabic came into Spanish. And on the last night there, we're in a lovely restaurant, and there on the shelf behind me is this Middle Eastern water jug, a glass globe, big neck, you grab it around the neck, and a spout. And you hold it up like this, and a clean spout of water goes into your mouth. You never have to touch your lips to the vessel. I called the manager. I said, Senor, where did you get that Middle Eastern drinking vessels? He went, Like this, he put his hands on his hip and he said, Senor, we have been making this for hundreds of years. This is ours. And that's when all the lights went on. I said, good grief. Middle Eastern culture has made a profound impact on Latin culture. I came back to Fuller Seminary where I was teaching. I went through my roster of students, and there she was. One student with a master's degree in Spanish literature. I called her into the office and I said, Sister, Forget about your strategy paper on an unreached Muslim people group, okay? I want you to research the number of Arabic loan words in the Spanish language. She found 6,000 of them. Wow. Uh, Not all of them are very common. Some are technical, some are archaic, but she found them. 
And I knew that I was onto something after that. When I finally started training Latinos, two things happened. In Latin America, when I talked about folk Islam and the occultic things that people do because they can't get in touch with God, who is far away, so they get in touch with spiritists and other people who have strange power, they do that. My students said, we have that here. We have that over there. Yeah, we have that kind of shrine there. It's just like the Muslim world. Wow, I woke up. The second thing that happened is when they got to the field, they made the Muslims very angry. And this is why they made the Muslims angry. Speak Arabic to us. You're here in Morocco. You are a Moroccan. What are you trying to do pretending you don't know our language? Speak Arabic. You look like one of us. You've got to be one of us. Speak And it it took ages for the Moroccans to understand there's another world called Latin America where people look like them. Oh, when I went to visit both my Caucasian students and my Latin students in Morocco, this is what the Caucasian students said. Don, we've been here six months and we haven't been invited to a single wedding. This is what my Latino missionary friend said. (laughs) Don, we've been invited to six weddings on the same weekend. What should we do? <laughs> Different problems. <laughs> is, I'm assuming this is because of the Umayyads that came all the way up into Spain and Cordoba. A lot of people don't know of the history um, of Spain and its Islamic influences from the early uh, Islamic dynasty. 711 to 1492, over 700 years. Mm, a lot more going on in 1492 than Columbus sailing the ocean blue. Uh, he sailed the ocean blue because the Spaniards conquered the Muslims and gathered all their money so they could finance Columbus. We didn't hear that part of the song, though, Don, in, in school. So, <laughs> unbeknownst to us. <laughs> so, have the they've been they've been effective in getting into communities with Muslims? How about in sharing the gospel? Uh, they are slower uh, to go for closure. Uh, they're more relational. I lost a board member over uh, who went with me to a Spanish board meeting of the Ibero-American Institute that I was directing in Granada, Spain. And uh, this board member watched the chairman circle the question uh, tighter and tighter circles, beating around the bush, he thought, until they finally get to the point. That's their way, you know, edging your backside into the water hole until you reach a consensus my board member lost it, and he stood up with a red face and pounded the table, and he said, let's get to the point. The Latinos in that committee meeting totally ignored him. He realized he was finished. He resigned. And they went around their normal way <laughs> of decision-making. And got to the point eventually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and maintain good relationships, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the little touch of shame and honor there, not this brutal Western confrontation stuff. Tell us a little bit about shame and honor in that context and how the gospel can best be presented in that context. Sensitivity. Um, the, Bible, um, uh, the Bible teaches an awful lot about respect. Uh, the fact that we're made in the image of God. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, uh, any sin against a fellow human being is treason because man is royal. We are the sons and daughters of God. When you pick up on uh, stuff like that about respect for another human being, you learn gentleness, you learn uh, not to confront, you learn not to embarrass. Uh, I, I was in a huge argument with the principal of my seminary uh, about a security measure. And uh, he was old-time missionary, and people were stealing stuff right, left, and center off the mission, off the seminary compound. And we needed to take some security measures. And uh, all of the faculty except him were concerned about it. And when the principal realized uh, that he was going to lose the argument in a vote, he lost his temper. And the Pakistani professor beside me said, Hargeya, he lost. You lose your temper, and that society, you lose. You cannot afford to do that. So you learn a, 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 a different style of sens- sensitivity 
in a shame and honor society. And you are very gentle uh, and non-confrontational about how you reach consensus when you're facing an issue. That's totally different than the, the blunt American way, let's get to the point sort of a thing. In the first story that you mentioned, you talked about how the man that saved your life, he stood in front of uh, the men that wanted to kill you. A, a, a mob. Right, the mob. And uh, you said that the crowd started to leave. Was that because of uh, him shaming them, basically, by uh, giving up his life in front of uh, the mob? I think so. He said, you'll have to kill me first. And they knew they couldn't do that. In fact, the Quran says you must never kill another Muslim. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where, if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you, you want like, to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. Okay, that, that, that statement right there is confusing to me <laughs> because of everything that we've talked about already. <laughs> yeah, how does that uh, pony up with what we see with groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and... In the case of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Taliban and Boko Haram and jihadists, um, they are fed up with the supremacy of the West. And they have memories of the glory of the Muslim past when they ruled the world, uh, both in black Africa, the, the, the Don Photo, the, the, the uh, jihadists uh, back in those days, uh, when they had fantastic empires, et cetera, et cetera, Baghdad and, and all of that. And they falsely conclude that the reason we are not able to be on top and ruling the world is that we are not good Muslims. So they are now driven by a passion to emulate Muhammad, who was eminently successful as a warrior as a builder of a community, uh, of uh, giving the world a law that answered almost everything and, and setting the example uh, by everything he said and did. So these, shall we say, formerly defeated Muslims in their own eyes saying, we are going to recover our lost glory, and we do it by emulating Muhammad in everything he did. He is the example. He's the perfect Muslim. He said, follow me. You have in me an excellent example. I'm the seal of the prophets. I'm the last voice of God to the human race. Follow me. That's what they're doing. And so they're not seeing others as true Muslims then? The, the Muslims that they do kill, they're not true Muslims in their eyes? or, or Exactly. Okay. Exactly. There's a doctrine called takfir. Uh, the Arabic root of that is the same root for kafir or blasphemer, meaning ungrateful. Uh, and uh, so takfir is the doctrine whereby I have examined you and you do not measure up to the example of Muhammad. Therefore, you are not really a Muslim. Uh, you either have to join me and, uh, and fight with on my side or you're the enemy. So this is how uh, Muslims are psyched into fighting one another. Dr. McCurry, there's a group there in the beginnings of Islam, the, the Karajites that are the literalists, and they uh, the ones that kill Ali for the Shiites, the, the Caliph Ali, and start a lot of this sort of dissension and fighting there right in the very beginnings. And they name them that as being the dissenters, the ones that are not within the folds of Islam. Mm-hmm. Is that the way the current Muslim world, the majority, whether or not it's moderate um, or not, but the majority of Muslims, are they looking at these groups as being sort of neo-Kartagites, the dissenters? They're saying everybody else isn't Muslim and they're trying to fight against all of Islam. Does that have anything to do with what you see happening today in the 21st century looking backwards? I'm not on their websites, so I'm not sure whether they're using the word Kartagites or not. But that is the way they're looking at things. 
They are trying to build now a war machine that will conquer the world because it's it's mandated in the Quran. And um, they, therefore, cannot tolerate dissent. They have to be totally united uh, in their effort, and and they go forward, therefore, with a, a tremendous, what you say in French, esprit de corps, with a tremendous spirit of victory in them. And with their peculiar concept of martyrdom uh, and the teaching in the Hadith, that if you kill a heretic, you'll go to heaven. And if you die by being killed by the heretic, you go to heaven. It's, it's a, a no-lose situation. It's a win-win thing for them. So there's a kind of intoxication that comes with releasing yourself to some kind of a cause like that. You see it minimally in rock concerts and stuff like that, where people surrender to the spirit that is there. They are surrendering to a spirit, and there is a spirit there. This is not just human emotion and adrenaline. There is also something from the spirit world energizing them. Okay, so this is one of those questions that we ask almost all of the people that we interview, particularly those that have studied in the academic field as well as been practitioners. And we get a, a wide variety of answers, as you can imagine. You probably know almost every, you would know everybody that we've interviewed. Um, there's a lot of debate about the true nature of Islam. Mm -hmm. Who has the right interpretation? Some have said, hey, it's a, it's a diverse religion. There's a lot of interpretations. There's no way to say who's right, who's wrong. It's just let the Muslim community sort that out. Some have said, well, you know, the, the radicals seem to be more in line with what they think Islam teaches. Do you have any thoughts on this with what we see here in the 21st century? Uh, my answer will probably be more shocking than any you've heard so far. Oh, I am so excited right now. I'm Go for it. Every variety of Islam is powered by the enemy spirit, including orthodoxy. So it's only a question of circumstances and personal persuasion as to what kind of Islam you belong to. But if you understand Ephesians 6.12 and, and everything behind it, the war in heaven, Jesus' meeting of Satan, Jesus calling Satan the prince of this world, casting out demons, binding the strong man, setting people free. If, if you accept the biblical worldview, then you understand Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are in the business of setting people free from whatever. And all those whatevers are under the enemy. Bringing people essentially from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. Acts twenty six, eighteen. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you would say the same thing of secular humanism, of materialism, of any other world system that is not yeah. faith in Christ. Yeah. Uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, a brilliant uh, Indian theologian philosopher, has written a book called The Book That Made Your World. He's analyzed every other ideology and religion. Bottom line, nihilism. They offer nothing. And life comes through Jesus Christ alone. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's that shocking. Uh, maybe it's because I had class with you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you studied with me before, okay? <laughs> That's what I. Mean. <laughs> Is there any last story you'd like to share from your book to give us one more glimpse into the uh, life stories that you've kind of gathered throughout your life? Thinking of, uh, tell me the the title again, Howard. What is it? The uh, tales that teach. Tales that teach. Could you give us one more tale to close with? A tale that might teach listeners. Um, Something about what we're seeing today in the Muslim world, maybe a lot that has to do with fear, a lot that has to do with uh, just uncertainty. Not people. I, I guess I get the feeling that people are having a, a hard time believing God's working. Okay, this, this uh, answer is going to come in two or three stages. But I want to use a domestic illustration from Pakistan. When we first went there without refrigerator, without washing machine, etc., etc., if you did not hire a local person to help you, you spent all your time surviving. So the, the day comes when you have to find people who are going to help you do the menial task. Uh, we had several disastrous experiences. 
Everybody we ever hired to help was a thief. They thought it was their right to help themselves to what they found. So my wife and I prayed, oh God, would you help us to find a Christian widow, maybe with a child or two, who could kind of become part of our family and live with us? And God answered our prayer. So in the beginning, I, I didn't get the game that this godly lady was playing. All I knew was that every once in a while she'd come to me and she said, uh, Mr. Don, I, ne I need a Bible. And uh, she said, I've been working with this person and they're ready to come to Jesus now and I need a Bible for them. Uh, so I would go get a Bible. After this happened three or four years, I said, Birkett baby, what is this that every once in a while you're asking me for a Bible? Is there something behind this? She said, I guess I, I never told you, but this is my prayer for each year of my life. God, let me lead one soul to Jesus this year. And that went on year after year. And she's the auntie to my children. She's the sister to my wife. She is part of us. And, and there in her private life, give me one soul. And God answered her desire every year. And that story in Tales That Teach is called Just One Soul. Okay, what about here in America? I'm going to be home for three months, which with no interruption, that's unusual. God, let me be authentic where I live. Let, let me meet Muslims here in Colorado Springs. I go to church and I see that we are teaching uh, verbal English to refugees. Sunday afternoon, I go join the group. They seat me beside two Iraqi Sunni families that lost everything when the Shias took over their property and kicked them out, and they became refugees in Jordan, then Connecticut, and finally Colorado Springs. I'm sitting beside two highly educated couples that had in unbelievably good positions in Sunni-controlled Iraq under Saddam Hussein, who now are penniless. What did I do? I prayed, let me be authentic here where I live. Let me meet Muslims here, Lord. It only took God 10 days to answer that prayer. I would urge every believer to ask God to open their eyes to the refugees, the immigrants, the indigents on their doorstep and offer themselves as an agent of redemption uh, for these unfortunate people under our noses. Even if it's as simple as the prayer of Burkett Baby, just let me lead one of them to Jesus each year. That's simple. It can be better than that. Okay? Well, Dr. Kurt McCurry, thank you so much for uh, your time. The stories have been amazing. The book that uh, he, uh, he wrote is called Tales That Teach. You can find it on Amazon. We're also going to put that link on our uh, website. Um, or mtm.books. Uh, mtm.books. What does MTM stand for again, Dr. McCurry? It's Ministries to Muslims. Ministry to Muslims. So if you type in Ministry to Muslims in, in Google, you'll see it there, mtm.books. And he's also got a book that I remember uh, from a while back, uh, Healing the Broken Family of Abraham, which is also an, an excellent book. And that's in 10 languages now. And I think... People have been, Muslims have actually been coming to Christ through reading that book, which is, uh, got time for one more story? Yeah, it's, it's because lazy Christians who are supposed to digest the book and learn everything in it, hand it straight to a Muslim, which they never should have done. And I thought that might happen. So I put a couple places in the book for my Muslim reader, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Oh, man, God is using a lot of things to draw people to himself. 
Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, those of you that enjoy the podcast, be sure to go on iTunes, leave a review, continue to share the, the podcast with people. I'll close with a, a, just a two-second story. I was in Louisiana last week. Uh, actually, I got in last night at midnight. And as I was uh, at my hotel, I got a phone call and they said, hey, there's a person that would like to take you out to dinner. They're a fan of the podcast. (laughs) And I was like, I've never met a listener of the podcast that I didn't personally know. (laughs) And so I go out to dinner (laughs) and you'll never believe it. I'm sitting at dinner in Louisiana and I say, so how did you hear about the podcast? He said, I had dinner with Don McCurry a few months ago at this very restaurant. And now I'm sitting across from Don McCurry. Isn't that amazing? It was a wonderful, wonderful evening. And Isn't I think that God amazing? is amazing. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. 